Bonjour everyone. Well, we're back with another taping of Pathfinder in Paris. This is Ryan Duffy, your host. And uh, rather than record an asynchronous intro, I'm gonna do it right here with my guests. Uh, before we dive in, huge shout out to the EuroConsult team for loaning us this uh, lovely room at World Satellite Business Week, because free space is hard to come by and quiet free space is even rarer. So joining me today is Brian Barrett, the Chief Technology Officer at Illyria. Right. Illyria. Okay. Okay. Illyria. I got it. And you just announced yourself to the world this week. Is yeah, that we right? did. Yeah. It's been an exciting week. So was it time to coincide with th this event? Yeah. I think, you know, we, I think we knew approximately sometime around this, mm -hmm. we'd like to kind of emerge out of stealth mode and announce, mm -hmm. announce the new venture. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it was kind of coming up around this season anyway. And we thought, yeah, it'd be a good thing to just time it and try to get it out. We, we missed it a little bit. I'll note, like, uh, you know, it would have been maybe better if we had uh, gotten the announcement out, like, Monday morning, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Paris time. It ended up being Monday morning U.S. time. So I think Monday at the conference, a lot of people missed the news. The time, uh, the time differences, yeah. the time differences are, are, are tough. So for, a, like, a little bit more um, exposition, you, Illyria is, I would say, kind of, kind of, Promising the world and then some, because there's there's of course a space space angle here. And if, if you go to the landing page, which we'll we'll link to in the show notes, uh, it's connectivity everywhere is like the first first sort of tagline you see. Um, that is, I, I think, and we'll get into this. I think that that's a, that's been a it's been a popular talking point and like favorite line recently, just with all the announcements we've mm -hmm. seen over the past few weeks and uh, months. But then to give a little bit more detail. Uh, Illyria says that it is orchestrating networks at planetary scale, uh, creating, organizing, and managing the world's most advanced networks to enable connectivity everywhere at the speed of discovery. And and everywhere, that spans from air, land, sea. Right. Like, I think a lot of that is a nod to, um, so, I, you know, there were two technologies previously developed at Google mm -hmm. that are now part of Illyria. Um, the network orchestration capability one of the things that's really unique about it is it supports terrestrial, air-to-ground, air-to-air, it supports ground-to-ground, -ground, maritime meshes, but as you get up into airborne and space, it's it's not only LEO and MEO and GEO, but the, the physics engine and the support supports out to cislunar and, and deep space, too. Okay. So, um, like, you know, there's even a lot of the applications looking at stuff with uh, NASA Near Space Network and the return to the moon uh, and things at Artemis that we're, we're talking about supporting as well. So it really is uh, a pretty broad set of domains and environments yeah. that can support. Yeah. Uh, so I think actually it would be good to to establish the the vocabulary. So these were these were um, the code. What, what were the code names? Yeah, there, there were two code names inside of uh, Google or Alphabet family. There was Minkowski, mm -hmm. uh, which is the software platform for kind of end-to-end, path-aware kind of network orchestration. Uh, and the other one was called Sonora, which was the Atmospheric Free Space Optics Project. Yes, and now those two are Tight Beam and Spacetime. Yeah, so Minkowski, uh, we're calling Spacetime. Okay. Uh, Minkowski's a scientist. There's a tradition in Google of, of naming software backends after scientists in the area that we were. Uh, and uh, it was kind of a, a, a network orchestration, kind of new kind of software-defined network that uh, operates the network by keeping track of where things are in space and how they're moving across space and time. Mm -hmm. Minkowski's was Einstein's professor, yeah. the, the inventor of space-time. So that's kind of the nod to the product to the product name there. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, yeah. And then the laser communications one was Sonora, we're calling Type Beam. Uh, that's a little bit of a nod to the Expanse universe or, or other sci-fi 
that mm-hmm. uh, refer to kind of highly directional kind of laser links as yeah. side beams. Yeah. I we're we're, we're going to get into uh, laser links and and kind of di- dive deep into the technology. But rewinding a little bit, tell us a, a bit about your, yourself and and you know you've been you've been deep in this world. I was actually looking at your your Google uh, citations before this mm. and looking, and you could see all the puzzle pieces start to come <laughs> together. And I'll, I'll link to it. But but uh, but what what were, were were you at Google Alphabet? Yeah, Alphabet, obviously. For those unaware, the, the parent company of, of Google. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the origins of this tech kind of even predate uh, predate that. Um, you know, I've kind of always been a space nerd, like I think a lot of mm-hmm. us are that got into the industry and a computer engineering background. But you know, a, sh- a shout out here to to NASA who funded um, a research program at our university when I was in grad school, um, and we were looking at you know how. NASA would kind of move, and this is kind of you know early 2000s and, and mid 2000s, but how NASA was going to move from like just circuits and and, and bits to actual packets yeah. that hop across multiple things in space. One of the things that I think that work realized is uh, some of the needs to like figure out how networks behave, not just links, but networks behave, uh, and to be able to model them and simulate them really well. And um, and I think that work led to other work, which led to advancements in being able to predict and model networks of flying, moving things really well. And that, I think, led to a realization that if you can you can model them and predict what they're about to do well enough, mm-hmm. you can use that as a basis to operate them in real time and near real time. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and led to the work later that we pursued in Google. But yeah. yeah, I was at Google, um, Google then Google X, and then uh, Loon, uh, an alphabet company, uh, for about six and a half years. Yeah, and my understanding, <clears throat> my understanding is that Illyria leverages a lot of the technology that was developed at Loon. That's right. Well, for yeah, and this is actually, I'll actually say, it's a little different than that. Okay. I think this is one that a lot of the coverage may be framed, uh, uh, maybe in a way that I think it could be framed better. Okay. Um, at least for the software work, for neither of these projects, neither of them were originally developed for Loon. Okay. Um, you know, Google and Alphabet worked on a variety of ways to connect the unconnected mm-hmm. for a number of, of mm-hmm. years. Uh, everything from low Earth orbit satellites to different types of high altitude platforms, solar, yep. long endurance gliders, mm-hmm. balloon-based platforms, terrestrial mesh technology. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, work that was um, intended to go across all of those projects. Okay. Uh, and that's why it kind of has the, the power and, and generality that it has mm-hmm. is because um, it was designed from the beginning to support uh, ground and air and mm-hmm. space and a variety of uh, frequencies and spectrum types. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so under the hood, a lot of this technology, you know, I, I have here in my notes, antenna link scheduling, network traffic routing, uh, spectrum, this one I wrote provisioning, but I think it was it was something different on the website, but authorization, or I, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure, but but uh, it's it sounds a bit to me like this is kind of like an, an operating system in a way. Is, yeah, that, is that is that right? Yeah, that's the right way to think of it. I think um, you know if you just think of any kind of like mega constellation you might imagine in your brain, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't matter if the f- maybe it's satellites or it's high altitude platforms or it's something else. And let's say it's providing internet access to people. Well, when packets come in from the internet, headed for that user, uh, you have a bunch of decisions to make along the way. Uh, one decision is like, what is the physical link structure of the network? There's all these possible links between 
air to air, air to ground, space to space, space to ground that you might use. Maybe there's some could be optical, some could be RF. So which ones do you use when? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but even after, even before you've made that choice, like what makes a good set of links in one of these networks? Um, well, it depends on the end-to-end path and where you're trying to get data to and from. So this system will do everything from um, you know do the routing between the antennas and the you know and the attachment point deep in a network. It'll route traffic through there. It'll schedule all the handoffs between ground stations and aircraft, or aircraft and satellites, and satellites and ground, and then handle the routing or, or uh, of packets across to inter-satellite links uh, and choices of frequencies and channels and bandwidths all the way end-to-end through the network. Because all these things are really interrelated to each other. Yeah. It's, if you solve one in a silo, you're kind of doing something uh, suboptimal. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really solving all of them at the same time mm-hmm. uh, in the most optimal way possible. When you bring this technology into, into demonstrations and, and then you know, eventually to market, what does the product look like? Is it, is it a, a software subscription? Is there, hard, there, there, is there hardware involved? Yeah, so, there's, so you know, Elyria has two different products, right? Uh, but for the software orchestration platform we call SpaceTime, uh, that's available now. It was used in production on Loom okay. at scale. Okay. Um, there's kind of thinking about where it's physically deployed. And then we can also talk about kind of the end user's experience yeah. with it. Uh, in terms of where it's physically deployed, it runs on a cluster of computers. So it can be hosted in a data center. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be as a software as a service. Maybe the customer has their own cloud environment they prefer it's deployed into. Right. So it can be deployed platform as a service. So that would be probably like more government customers. Uh, yeah. I, well, I think there's even a lot of commercial customers that um, maybe care about having you know, control and maybe customers supplied encryption keys for mm-hmm. their own kind of private yeah. Uh, cloud project they prefer it deployed into sometimes. Mm-hmm. Some want a turnkey software as a service. Some want it on-prem in like a hybrid cloud model. So we can support all of those things. Now the way the end user experiences it, uh, while the end user just getting internet access doesn't kind of really know it's there. It just means the internet works and they don't experience packet loss or, or maybe TCP connection slowdown during all the handoffs and reconfiguration because all of that happens smoothly without packet loss. But to the satellite operator uh, or, or the HAPS operator, uh, or to you know NASA operations center that's doing end-to-end comms, uh, we have a, a, a web interface mm-hmm. uh, for kind of situational awareness about what the network's doing. Um, you know, the, I'm looking forward to getting all the product shots up on the site because it's real. We've got it now, but some of the cool features it has is you load it, you see like the globe, right? Everything that's flying around, maybe Earth, maybe lunar, you know, whatever the the setting is, and it starts out with a live view of this network. But you have this uh, time slider, and you can just grab time and scrub time left and right. See all the satellites or the aircraft and everything reconfigure, and see the paths that everything was taking at what time. But if you click on something, it also gives you a bit of a view into what's happening in the ground routing, like behind your antennas on the ground, mm-hmm. across to kind of your ground-based network and how the data is flowing through that. So it gives you this full situational view and lets you kind of dive into things. Overlays weather, because sometimes we have to land the links from air or space to ground to dodge storms depending yeah. on the link types you're using. It lets you overlay that information and lets you see all those things. Right. A perennial problem with like with, with using lasers of these sorts of applications has been weather, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what sorts of, of, of workarounds, if any, do you have to that? And and I guess, you know, f- focusing on re- returning to the, the topic of of the, the laser links and laser communications, what's new about the, the technology that you've, that you've developed? Yeah, so... So I, you know, we talked about Tightbeam and SpaceTime, these mm-hmm. kind of two yeah. products. So Tightbeam is laser communications 
but it's coherent light communications designed to run through the atmosphere. So I'm not an optics or photonics expert. I've had to ramp up on it lately. But for those that are new to it, I'll, I'll kind of give the, the, the explanation that I, that I came to understand. That's much appreciated by all <laughs> <Yeah>. of us. <laughs> Most people that are doing laser communications uh, are doing it with incoherent light or non-coherent light. We're really, um, it's the same as the light coming out of like a, a light bulb or something. Mm -hmm. It it's, it's, doesn't maintain its order. And the way you send information is like the same way you would as like a Boy Scout with a flashlight. You like are flashing it on and off. And if you flash it on and off fast enough, you can send information that way. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called on-off keying. You're just keying the light on and off to send information. Um, coherent optics is where you maintain the order of the, of the light and the photons uh, as it's transmitted. And that lets you do kind of the kind of modulations that are used in radio frequency communications and get much faster data rates. And that's where with tight beam, our data rates through the atmosphere start at 100 gigabits a second per wavelength of light and go up from there because you can get a lot more information through. Or if you don't care about the data rate of information, you can get more signal strength in exchange, more dB decibels yeah. of link margin in exchange. Uh, and that can be really, really powerful. Um, we're not the first people to try to do coherent light, free space optics. Uh, I think what we believe is the differentiator with what we're doing is that one, it was designed from the beginning uh, to solve the problems of lasers through the atmosphere. Uh, so space-to-ground, air-to-ground yeah. applications was from the start with a team that has a long heritage of working on those problems and flying those things with a lot of flight hours. Mm -hmm. And we're doing some novel things to really correct for what happens to the light as it goes through the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, on the... Uh, going, you, you, you've demoed this, right? Right. I recall reading in, in the article that you've demonstrated this technology. Um, can you say a little bit more to, to the extent, you know, it's not privileged, confidential, like... No, that's right. I mean, we, we have, um, you know, we have an aircraft with these terminals mounted to them. Um, we, we run a link uh, mm -hmm. uh, to the aircraft. It can provide, you know, demos to, mm -hmm. to customers that want to see it, that it's, that it's real and it works. Uh, running at these data rates uh, for, for an air-to-ground link. Uh, we also maintain um, terrestrial links for, for demos, long-distance ground-to-ground uh, links uh, all the time uh, from, from our facility in Livermore, California Yeah. Uh, for, for people to kind of witness Yeah. Uh, and the conditions that the link can survive. Yeah, so I'm going to ask an, uh, and explain it to me like I'm five question here, yeah. but ground-to-ground, can you say yeah. a little more about how that, how that works? And this is, I mean... We're a space publication, but that I mean, given given the topic and given like the area that, right? What yeah, you, like you're building. so, you know, when you're trying to prove out um, this kind of laser communications technology, like the hard part's getting through the atmosphere, and when you're trying to do it with coherent light, you need to you need to correct for all the disturbances so it all is still in order. Mm -hmm. So for a ground to ground link, um, you need to pick two locations that you could see it. Right, you could look through a telescope line and still sight. see the other point. Yeah, you have to have line of sight. Yeah. Uh, but if you're running it, say in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know there's um, sometimes um, light fog or there's there's heat, you know, coming off um, the urban environment. Uh, there's um, you know there's there's atmospheric turbulence, like the same way that the same reason that uh, like stars twinkle mm -hmm. at, at night. Uh, they you know it's because the light from it to your eye as it goes through the atmosphere is is getting disturbed. So you kind of have to undo that effect. Yeah, um, and so getting really good at running a long distance link from, say, the top of a building to the top of a mountain. 
uh, okay. in an environment like that, where you have that kind of heat and fog in the Bay Area, uh, and, and working through those problems. Um, when you then transition to space applications, uh, you're often going through less atmosphere, because um, you know when you go a very long distance length, there might be more net atmosphere between those two points yeah. than when you raise that length straight up into the sky. Yeah. You only go through so much atmosphere, then you hit the vacuum of space where things are easy. Uh, relatively yeah, easy. yeah yeah and I, and if I remember my 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 drone license test it's a very interdisciplinary test but the air gets thinner yeah right yeah 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 yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. I have to I have to renew it soon too so so it's kind of in a way this is like like studying up uh, and and you envision that the I mean kind of kind of the the like I think one of the animating principles if, if I'm understanding correctly correctly and correct me if I'm wrong but is is interoper interoperability here mm -hmm. and the ability you know to talk to various types of systems is that right yeah that's right I think um, I think sometimes the relation between the two products and what we're really going for a company can can be a bit confusing to people mm -hmm. uh, to use your analogy of like an operating system uh, like we invite and, and are happy with everyone to write kind of like device drivers right for to hook up their switches or onboard processors or their ground terminals or antennas or their free space optical terminals uh, to, to work with this system. We're making all of the APIs mm -hmm. open. Uh, uh, we're actually working to try to contribute them in open industry consortia mm -hmm. to make them like open standards mm -hmm. uh, so that everyone can plug in and integrate with everyone else like from a vendor standpoint. Between network operators that adopt space time uh, we think we can offer unprecedented, way more flexible ways to coordinate with each other. If two networks are both using this, whether it's on spectrum or internetworking or sharing ground stations. Uh, so we think that's really powerful too. I think the way to think about our hardware product with Tightbeam is it's something that you can get as kind of like an optional add-on that comes pre-integrated with this operating system. Okay. But you don't you don't have you don't have to take that. Yeah. Yeah. The issues of of spectrum authorization and all of that. It's it's. It's wild. It's super complex and, and mm -hmm. nuanced, and it's like the the beefiest part of, of the aerospace industry, I think. But with with Tightbeam, what sort of regulatory authorizations and and like licenses would you need, and how would that be different than the traditional way that you know we communicate with satellites and satellites communicate back to ground? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's one of the things that excites people about about optical, about about laser yeah. for air to ground and space to ground is that. My understanding is there there aren't spectrum licenses um, yeah. r required to do that. Um, the the wavelength that people usually use for the laser, fifteen fifty nanometer. Uh, my understanding is it's eye safe. Uh, mm -hmm. That wavelength, the light bounces off your retina, it doesn't even go into your eye. Um, so it's eye safe technology. It's technology that really um, you know uh, you know doesn't really cause interference. It's really just you know like it's like a laser link from, yeah. from one to the other. And you don't really have the kind of spectrum coordination required. Uh, I think historically, people's people have wondered, well, you know, what about weather conditions it can't get through? Those are always there, and I think that's where the power of these two products combined comes in, because we really need to move from thinking as an industry about the uptime of an individual link to the uptime of an end-to-end -end network path mm -hmm. to a customer. Uh, and if you're looking at laser space-to-ground for like backhauling data in a network. Uh, well, the space-time platform can analyze at scale every possible link between everything and everything else in your network, including the effect that weather's having 
on every possible link across everything. And then uh, it's going to choose links and evolve the end-to-end -end path structure of the network, including dependent inter-satellite link routing and other things, to land that traffic where that weather won't impact you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that really lets you, um, I think that's a, that's a required breakthrough to operate laser space-to-ground and air-to-ground links at scale as a production network. It probably goes without saying, but behind the scenes, you're, uh, this system is running some pretty advanced models, I'd imagine, mm -hmm. deep learning models and everything. And in, in, in that regards, did, did the sort of the association, uh, and, and actually I do want to ask about this, I want to ask about this next, but the association with uh, Alphabet and obviously Google's uh, one of the leading research institutions, but also practitioners of AI, broadly speaking, did that sort of pedigree help in developing this? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I don't want to speak too much on behalf of Google, so I'll, I'll talk about just my personal yeah. experience. But um, I had not had personal experience uh, building kind of software uh, services with high availability uptime and scale, mm -hmm. like, like at these scales, um, prior to working there. And it's great to be surrounded by people who do that every day for other services that people know and love that run at really large scale, yeah. uh, hosted there. Yeah. And so to be surrounded by those tools and that infrastructure and those other people to help you understand how to build and architect a system like this uh, to run at that scale, yeah, it, it was definitely impactful. You're hitting the ground running in a way, right? Because Illyria was, was as, as being dubbed in you know the articles that have been written so far and it's the first three days or so, or four days, I guess now, I'm, I'm the Paris the Paris time difference yeah, is messing me. Yeah, um, but but you spun out of of Alphabet. Is that is that a fair? Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, I think um, spin out means different things to different people. Yeah. So I think I think the right way to describe it is Illyria, the entity, acquired this technology from Alphabet in right. exchange for in exchange for I'm I'm an equity stake probably. So I'll just, I think all I can say there is, is, is Google Alphabet remains like a minority okay. owner yeah. and, and shareholder in the yeah. company. But it's important to stress we are an, we're an independent company. company. Right. This is not an Alphabet company. You read my mind because I did want to ask, I asked, I have that in my, in my notes here. You're, you're independent, like full stop. Mm -hmm. um, there are, of course, these, there, there, there are like other bets. Like before we were recording, I was talking about how in a past life, I covered Waymo pretty closely and Wang pretty closely. For those who don't know, those are the self-driving and drone mm -hmm. drone delivery ventures. At least Waymo has has shifted a little bit in that it's taken some outside investment, but independent entity, full stop. Say, say a little bit more about the backgrounds of the team and headcount, what that looks like, how, you know, you're, you're as I understand it, this is, this is pretty groundbreaking technology and like really pushing pushing the boundaries cutting edge stuff uh, but it's still it's a relatively small team yeah I think um, we have probably close to 30 ish full-time people uh, right now maybe into the 40s if you count some of uh, our part-time contributors um, and and the vast majority of the team are the people that worked on the tech uh, before, mm -hmm. like inside inside Google and Alphabet, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's something you know, that also says a lot. Um, the the folks working on Tightbeam worked on it right up and until um, we're now Illyria. Yeah. Uh, but the people working on this tech um, on the space time side and Project Minkowski, you know, had had a bit of a period of uncertainty. You know, when 
um, when the tech kind of got put on the shelf a bit, when kind of the last of uh, the Google and, Air, and Alphabet Aerospace Network projects kind of wound down with Lee. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of the fact that so many people believed in this so much to try to come back and support it and help help mm-hmm. it from whatever they were doing mm-hmm. uh, also says a lot about how much everyone believes in the technology and is proud of what we built. Is it just kind of a product of of right time, right place, or, or is I mean you know it's people as people say timing is is everything, but as it relates to to tight beam, uh, and then I mean I, I guess we could also apply the question to, to space time, but specifically with tight beam, I think that the amount of work that you see happening in in the space industry, you know, like Starlink is obviously putting the optical inter satellite links uh, into into their production satellites, and there's just a ton of other mm-hmm. activity which we cover very frequently in the payload newsletter as with with laser links. Has their time arrived? And 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 if so, what's the fundamental reason? Like, are, are there breakthroughs in, in hardware, that sort of thing? I think I'm, I'm not sure. I'll speculate a bit in terms of why we're seeing so much of it now and, and how we also think about tight beam and ourselves and our strategy as it relates to that is that as the capacity of these networks grow, and if you look at the cumulative ad, uh, you know, annual growth rate of data consumption yeah. in the world, right? Like, people's appetite for data is, like, insatiable. Yes. People keep thinking of their next generation constellations, lower altitudes, more capacity, more spectrum, more data. And even if you're using inter-satellite links at you know, tens of gigabits a second or, or higher, usually people think of the space-to-ground link, at least for a constellation with inter-satellite links, as maybe aggregating the capacity across multiple serving satellites. Yeah. So if you're aggregating that capacity and you're talking about inter-satellite links of tens of gigabits a second, and you must think you need those for a reason, mm-hmm. Usually, you're thinking about a space-to-ground link in excess of those data rates. Yeah. Right. And there's just a limit to how much data you're going to push with with RF. And if you try to approach those data rates with radio frequency, you're often moving into the V-band or E-band or frequency bands where you anyway have these sort of weather phenomena are problematic, mm-hmm. right? With droplet sizes or rain or different things. So uh, solving these things at a network level and bringing these sort of capacity, uh, we think. We think the people that need space time are often the people that will also need tight beam. It's like your, your constellations are yeah. getting more complex. Mm-hmm. You're adding inter-satellite link routing. Maybe you're doing a next-gen constellation at a different altitude with your first-gen constellation. Or you've got a MEO fleet or a GEO fleet you want to interoperate. So you're getting multi-altitude, you're getting multi-orbit, you're getting all these, maybe your mix of radio and other technologies at different bands. And so you can't just build something special purpose anymore for a certain orbit and a certain frequency and leverage some repetition in the geometry of your network. Yeah. You need this full-blown flexibility. And because of that same complexity and scale, you probably also need more data to the ground. Yeah. And, and tight beam will be important. Yeah. So at, an, at a really abstract level, if you're talking about a satellite, like historically, that satellite has been designed to point in, in, in one direction. Right. And you know you see the, the, the rise of the multi, multi-orbit and that sort of thing. And uh, I forget who, but oh, I was I was speaking with uh, with 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 Capella Space, which is mm-hmm. based in San Francisco. You know, building a SAR constellation, but they they go up um, to to I forget whose whose constellation, but but that's that's kind of that gets to the essence of of what you're saying, right? It's not your your grandfather's satellite constellation in a way, because like they're pointing in multiple directions. Yeah, that's right. I think I'll, maybe I'll take it to two places, both of which I think need t- need something like space time now because of how they're changing. If you were doing an Earth observation satellite before, some polar orbiting thing with a sensor, 
you know, you'd acquire imagery or whatever you're sensing is. And when you eventually got over a ground station, maybe you're on the poles, you'd downlink it. Mm-hmm. A lot of those companies want to get more real time, lower latency. They maybe yeah. have inter-satellite links or they want to be really intelligent about how they downlink and they can point an antenna one way while imaging a different way. So you have a need there. And then for communications constellations, yeah, same thing. I mean, geostationary satellite or, or something that had some body fixed beam, mm-hmm. that's just a constant cone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's bent pipe, and a ground station is always in view. Uh, that's that's like a whole different, a whole different thing to what we're seeing people propose now with these uh, you know, regenerative mega constellations with intersatellite links and yeah. multi-orbit things. To utilize this, is it only you know satellites going up from here on out? Like, do they they, no. they don't need special sort of no? We're really designed to overlay with where you are today, and then support your growth. If if you wanted to update, say, your ground station software or your spacecraft payload software to talk natively and directly to space-time, that's fine. But that's not practical for everybody. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are like, hey, I, I can't change that. It's on yeah, orbit. Yeah, or, yeah. Or, especially like the ones up in Geo. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. Or I've got, been up there for a while. Yeah, or, I've got, or, or maybe just the person you'd have to ask to change it. It's just impractical for you. Yeah. So maybe you have some existing thing on the ground, some, some piece of software or hardware or appliance or whatever it is, that talks some proprietary format to tell that comms payload what to do or to talk to control those ground stations. So uh, our kind of software APIs uh, for space-time, we have kind of two sets of software APIs. There's one that faces kind of the infrastructure. We call it the southbound. And there's, a, there's an API that, that faces kind of like your business intelligence. We call it like the northbound API. But the southbound API is really set up for adapters. So you can take a, like a whole class of, say, satellites or certain ground stations from a certain vendor and, and, and use um, our APIs to kind of auto-generate the code that you use to just make a pluggable adapter to just to convert our format to your, your existing heritage one. Mm-hmm. So that can get you, kind of help you gracefully transition what you got now, and then we'll kind of support you know, that future growth. When you're talking about communicating with an asset that just in the most simplest terms is farther and further away, mm-hmm. and you have hit on this a bit, of course the, the, the technical terms that you use completely escape me now, but but you know, let, let even just a low Earth orbit versus geostationary orbit, like how how much there, there's got to be some sort. Of, I don't know, the word in my head right now is like packet loss, but like the strength of of the the link, you know, must must weaken, right? Yeah, I think I think there's two challenges that you can think about with with distance and how our stuff relates. Um, for for tight beam for laser link. Um, even though we think of a laser as like a pure point-to-point, there's still some diffraction, you know, of the laser. Like yeah, it still yeah. fans out a tiny bit mm-hmm. as it goes out in distance. So yeah, that, that translates to effects either you know less photons getting through or, or more data rate challenges or something. So right. There are challenges associated with distance uh, on the network orchestration side with space time when you're trying to tell, you know, communications assets what to do when. Uh, the longer distance you have. Uh, the more you kind of have to forecast the motion that's coming with the orbit propagation, even multi-body, because we support deep space and cislunar, and and understand what's about to happen before it's going to happen, and then give that link or that radio or that gimbal enough information about where the thing is it needs to link up with, say, minutes from now, Mm -hmm. uh, to do that. Uh, Another effect that you get into with the deep space stuff, because we're we're doing, uh, we're we're in a lot of conversations with NASA uh, not only for lunar, but for some of the deep space, kind of Mars and, and other deep space networking, is there's a technology called DTN, or bundle protocol, for storing and forwarding data in transit. Yeah. So you, 
so to orchestrate that stuff, you have to keep track of how much how much like memory can each node store. Yeah. And uh, and kind of plan when they're going to have links with each other, but kind of model the rate at which you know the data at the source needs to get to the destination and what intermediate nodes are capable of storing forward versus which ones aren't, how much they can store, and kind of help with uh, kind of this schedule-aware graph routing in a delay-tolerant networking sense. That's fascinating. Uh, and supporting That's that as well. Super fascinating, super mind-blowing. And as you get further and further out to deep space today, you have to deal with, with, what, with what you have. And yeah. compared to what, you know, compared to a mission that, that you could send to some theoretical point in deep space today with today's technology, like, that memory and, and the communication, like it's not going to be the same as, as what, what already is out there. So would you, you know, theoretically one day be working like with or alongside a deep space network, that sort yeah. of thing? Yeah, we, we'd love to. I mean, we, um, I think we're in, I would call it preliminary conversations with yeah. them now, but um, I think, you know, the, the community that works on like the, the interplanetary networking mm-hmm. uh, uh, group, um, you know, is, is looking a lot about what's the best way to do routing with store and forward for deep space. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, in those kind of networks, you're anyway planning the sets of point-to-point links between things yeah. um, in advance. And then using that information to plan how it should be routed along with consideration of storage is something that our system can easily support because it already is modeling all the forward motion and is helping with that link planning. Yeah, um, yeah. Man, this is this is uh, this is some 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 deeply technical like like multidisciplinary disciplinary stuff. And and to that end, actually, what parts of the technical roadmap? And you're the person perfect person to ask this to. What parts of the technical roadmap, Valeria, are are de-risked? What you know? What sort of engineering problems are quote unquote solved? Mm-hmm. Because uh, a lot of this sounds like kind of boundary pushing physics yeah. stuff. I suppose like the corollary to that is is what would you still need to kind yeah. of prove out? Yeah. So we'll kind of talk about those on, on both products. I think on the tight beam side, uh, I think we feel like as a team uh, we're at the forefront with coherent light at these really high data rates and correcting for the atmospheric disturbances. We think we have some novel things there. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, we're doing a lot of things other people have looked at, and then we think we're doing those those and more. Um, and I think for an airborne terminal, uh, we've got a lot of flight hours, and we feel pretty good about air-to-ground. But we don't have a, a, a space-grade terminal that's flown in space and been yeah. space-qualified. Yeah. So I think that's a lot of what people are looking forward to there, opportunities to put this thing on orbit, partner with somebody, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and really get that done. Um, I, think, I think on the space-time side... Uh, we are we have a production grade service available now. It's been used on Loon uh, with over two million flight hours of comms yep. payloads, multiple continents, hundreds of thousands of unique users. So it's been production deployed. Uh, we can deploy it now. We've finished porting it kind of off of uh, Google internal infrastructure onto a, a public cloud environment, and you know we can do demos, turn up instances that could be used in production now. Some of the things we look forward to doing with it. Um, I'll say one is our scale can support up to 15 million possible links in a network. That sounds really huge. Uh, it'll support you know, pretty much any mega constellations scale today. But one of the things we're interested in getting into is helping people coordinate networks with other networks. Uh, as yeah, we kind yeah, of yeah. grow the network effective adoption of people using space time, uh, we think there's a lot of power 
in, in really interesting ways to coordinate networks with each other, helping operators coordinate them with other people in ways that are way more flexible and way more efficient, mm-hmm. uh, or even share assets. Uh, I think we see today you know, ideas of ground station as a service mm-hmm. and people doing scheduling just satellite to ground station based on intervisibility. I think what we're looking at is doing that on a network path aware basis across you know, air to space, space to space, like all the way along the whole path, yeah. that, that kind of model and the ability to have some neutral infrastructure that can be shared across things, building out support for that kind of federation across multiple instances of space time. Right. Uh, is not only one of our big roadmap items, it's something we're really interested in, uh, but that also necessitates even more than 15 million possible links in the network mm-hmm. uh, when you start pushing those things together. Uh, and, and that's also really well aligned with what you see as visions with NASA's transition to the near space network Mm-hmm. Or, or other government initiatives to build hybrid space architectures mm-hmm. uh, is kind of looking in that direction. What are some future sort of use cases that you you see terrestrial maybe that that you see? I think you know I think the canonical one might be might be plain Wi-Fi because because mm-hmm. a, a lot of people are f- familiar with the trials and tribulations of using plain Wi-Fi. Yeah, in some of your marketing materials on the website or something I saw, you know, there's, there's drone. I mean, there's, there's of course so many, so many different uh, ways that this could be used. Is it, is it premature to be thinking about that or no? I don't think it's premature to be thinking about it. I mean, this stuff's, I mean, I think it's, it's good for me to caveat that like we're getting into the realm now of like kind of the fun stuff we think about maybe doing with the tech. Mm -hmm. It's still a ways off and I don't think anyone's sharpened the pencil too deeply on this stuff, but we are definitely getting good enough or believe we are uh, uh, good enough at kind of uh, understanding at scale how the position, let's say, of an aircraft and even the bank angle it's about to happen, even if it's human piloted, would obstruct a laser link or, or something, oh, wow. uh, even for an air-to-air or air-to-ground. So if you imagined, uh, like, the density of commercial air traffic, right, in, um, I, uh, let's say, even over the you know continental United States or something, uh, like, could you build a typing mesh between all that commercial air traffic? at hundreds of gigabit oh, wow. a second without using satellite and and like our aircraft stacked up close to each other when around takeoff and landing that you could hop from the airport up to the air uh, at shorter distances and, and build some sort of mesh like this. Mm-hmm. Is that practical? Would the commercial model ever work? Uh, not sure. But yeah. those are interesting things to explore with this kind of technology if you could build, if you could bring, you know, hundreds of gigabits a second to an aircraft that's a gigabit a seat kind of kind of numbers and, yeah and those things yeah. are really interesting yeah yeah and well, I, I suppose actually that that was that's another corollary to the question that I asked earlier and really just gets to the the, the cost curves of all of this mm-hmm. and the the commercial viability like I would imagine that that deploying this and in, in production is not cheap and um, so so I, I guess the the second part of that is is would you, do you like what's your roadmap in terms of, of work? I'm I'm imagining you probably work with, with uh, you know, so, you know, civil space, militaries, that sort of thing, or or enterprises that are like, less maybe price sensitive, and and this is just like a, you know, enabling this for some sort of mission mission critical application is important. Is that a good guess? Can you speak to? Are are you already in like customer? I mean, obviously, you know, you, you mentioned that you're you're working, you're working with with some. You, you have talks and you've demoed this and that sort of thing. But like, yeah, I guess what kind of segments, uh, and, and, and I'll limit it to, to aerospace, 
yeah. do, you, do you anticipate working with first? So in terms of customers of this technology and who's likely to be first, we kind of are thinking about it on a need basis. So if you have a constellation up today and it's working fine, and let's say it's a specific geometry, it's a specific frequency, maybe what you have now is fine, or you can build something very special purpose and special tuned and simpler for that exact geometry and frequency and altitude of a satellite network. So on the other side of the coin, though, there's people who today need multi-orbit uh, or even multi-domain, as they call it, like air and space and you know, yeah. ground meshes yeah. all together. Uh-huh. Uh, they need the full complexity uh, of what we've built. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it to be still elegantly deployed and high available and easy to use. Uh, so I think that's where the, the strongest pool comes from first. And so uh, whether that's um, some of the people you might think of that are trying to do constellations that mix, say, a maritime mesh and a space component or yeah. something where they're putting up a second-gen constellation at a different altitude, mm-hmm. there's pool there on the commercial side. Mm-hmm. And then on the government side, whether it's civil government or defense, there's people who are already have those same needs. Yeah. And I think those are, are like the first the first movers yeah. for us. Yeah. yeah. And then I guess, I guess uh, bringing this back to, to Earth, geographically speaking, mm-hmm. There are obviously so, you know, I think an easy way that I envision this is just all of, all of the parts of the world that, that are out of cellular connectivity. And I mm-hmm. think that that was also what Loon was, was, was getting at, Play, you know, like bringing connectivity to these places where it would never be economical or, or cost effective to lay fiber or yeah. build tel- telco networks. Like, is that where, you know, again, ge- geographically speaking, like you see this there's a, there's a definite geographic component, but I, I think I think of it a little a little differently. Um, like if you imagine, like holding a flashlight above a table, right, and shining it down. You know, you you, you kind of illuminate a small area if the flashlight's right over the table, and then as you raise it up, mm-hmm. you cover more. There's light, more light shining, more area, but it's like less. It's like more diffuse. It's like you know fainter per per every like square inch of the table, right? And I actually think of connecting the unconnected in, in a very similar sense. You've got like something that emits energy. It's like a radio, right? And if you're at the height of a tower, uh, all of that bandwidth is over a small area. So you get a lot of data rate per square kilometer. Yeah. And then as you raise altitude, uh, you're often getting more coverage area, but you get less megabits per second per square kilometer. Yeah. Well, population density on Earth varies five orders of magnitude. Like there's pe- places on Earth that have like two people per square kilometer, like Saskatchewan. And then there's like downtown Manila, just tens of thousands of people mm-hmm. per square kilometer. Mm-hmm. So you have these like five orders of magnitude. But a lot of what that kind of indicates to you is there's no one-size-fits-all solution for connecting the unconnected from an altitude standpoint. You'll never do it all with towers. And you'll never do it all with satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and interestingly, um, uh, single kilometers mm-hmm. of altitude is, is like, okay, you can think of it as like tower. Tens of kilometers, think of it as like haps. Hundreds of kilometers, that's Leo. Thousands of kilometers is Mio, and tens of thousands is Geo. Okay. And so I, we, we really think the solution for connecting the unconnected is a mix of terrestrial base stations, high altitude platforms, Leo, Mio, and Geo, all working together. And there's parts of the world geographically, like you mentioned, where there's a there's an optimal altitude almost mm-hmm. uh, for that population density, and it's clumpy and it's non-uniform. Mm-hmm. But the solution to connecting the rest of the world is like all of the above. Yeah, yeah, and all of the above. Start. That's literally what I was going to say. But yeah. I think that's a good good note to 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 close out on is, is connecting the unconnected because that's that's what what all this is about. 
but I'd be remiss to not do my classic end of show really <laughs> rapid fire. Uh, you do you do you have any any role models or anyone that's per, like particularly inspired you over the course of your career? It's less of an individual. I think um, like technology areas inspire me. Like at different times in my career, I've headed down paths for different reasons, um, a place I want to work or mm-hmm. a work-life balance I want or yeah. something. But uh, it's really great to like be energized and excited. Uh, I think I've just enjoyed chasing things to work on that I want to nerd out on. Yeah, yeah. And and enjoying it. Yeah. Um, I've had a lot of great mentors along the way uh, and, and support. Um, I think a lot of the people uh, early on, uh, even in, in the NASA world, I think, you know, yeah, kind of mm-hmm. helped inspire me to get into this area. Yeah. yeah. Do you like sci-fi? Love sci-fi, yeah. Yeah. What's your What's your favorite? I mean, that's it's a broad question. It's a super broad question. <laughs> uh, I'll give a plug right now to um, Project Hail Mary with Andy Weir for anyone that hasn't read it yet. Okay. Uh, his sequel, The Martian, just finished it. Awesome. Okay. It's a fantastic novel. Um, it's probably my favorite right now on the, on the recent side. I think people listening will probably know Tight Beams, a little bit of a nod, maybe to the Expanse universe. Some people have noted there yeah. was a prior Star Trek reference. Uh, I think Tight Beams appeared a few times in sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, a little nod there as well. We'll include all that in the the show notes. Next one would be hottest space take or most contrarian view on the the future. And I, and I typically will say space economy, but it can be you know it can, can widen the aperture a bit. It could be space exploration. I don't know that sort of thing. Oh, hot hot takes. All right, I'll give a hot take. I don't think haps are dead. Okay. Okay. That's my hot take. Um, I think there are some very interesting. High altitude platforms. Yeah, sorry. High altitude, yeah, high altitude <laughs> we, we, we got we got fifty five minutes. To yeah, forgot the thanks. Like, but, but yeah, atmospheric satellites. Yeah. I used to, I used to get more traction calling them atmospheric satellites. I think it makes people. It's the right framing for mm-hmm. those systems. I think towards the tail end of Loon, we got very interested in 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 kind of aerodynamically shaped, you know, lighter than air vehicles. Yeah, yeah. That could have. If you mixed what we learned on Loon about using AI to like change altitudes automatically and find the best winds with just enough kind of lateral propulsion, right? Like mm-hmm. propellers to go, uh, you know, laterally, like around, mm-hmm. to um, uh, to overcome those to use as a combination, like rather than building a monster airship that can punch through any wind. Yeah, that combination of the two, I think, is really compelling. And uh, I think there are people out there that don't get a lot of visibility who are working that problem, and I think it's. I think they could be very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think they're very compelling platforms to use in hybrid networks with satellites, places where space-based systems will sell out of capacity. Like we already see that with some of these mega constellations. Mm-hmm. It's places where people don't have terrestrial internet. They can't get good DSL or cable or fiber. But like Starlink or whatever it's going to be, Kuiper or something, sold out. Yeah, And the ability to take a 20-kilometer satellite, because mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. trade-off I talked about with altitude and density, mm-hmm. slot that thing in and like operate it as a hybrid network, you know, plug and powered by space time, right? Because we support it. I think it. I think it's not dead. I think there's still something there. Yeah, yeah. Last question, I suppose, is uh, where where if all goes to plan, where do you see yourself in earlier in five years? I would like to see space time become kind of the de facto, kind of open, neutral platform for facilitating orchestration of aerospace networks and coordination between them. Awesome. Oh, actually, and one more. 
are do you have any concerns about any of uh, about about aliens like piggybacking on, <laughs> or intercepting or anything any of your communications or networks or anything hey the, the, the nice thing about uh laser links is you got to be in the beam okay right? okay so, okay yeah, yeah, thanks go. for the last opportunity to plug low probability intercept and jam. Yeah, so the, one of the first lasers. Oh, hope, hopefully, none of the none of the aliens are listening to this. Yeah. Brian, thanks a bunch for coming on. Hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Okay, folks, if you like what you heard, leave us a rating and review on your podcast player of choice. It will really help, and it's much appreciated. As always, you can reach out to me at Ryan at PayloadSpace.com with feedback, tips, or just to say hi. Pathfinder is brought to you by Payload, a modern space media brand, and it's easy to remember. We publish Payload, we publish Pathfinder, and we publish Parallax. So check out those other properties if you haven't already. That'll do it for now, though. I'm Ryan Duffy signing off, and I'll see you back here next Tuesday.